Welcome to Resonance, conversations about life and music, a production of Palaver Strings with me, your host, Nate Martin. Today on the podcast, Sophie Michaud. She's a mezzo-soprano in the Boston area, a member of the Lorelei Ensemble, and of the band Columba, among other things. It was through a collaboration between Palaver and Columba that I first met Sophie, uh, Palaver violist uh, Lysander Jaffe is in both of those groups, Columba and Palaver, and he helped facilitate that collaboration. And there are a few big reasons why I wanted to talk to Sophie. One is that she sings professionally in a couple different styles, a bunch of different styles, from classical opera to historical performance and choral to American shape note to Georgian, Corsican, South African folk songs, many more, uh, gospel and soul and Edith Piaf. Uh, just a few of the a few of the things that she does, and because of the breadth of her career, uh, because that's such a distinctly modern thing, I wanted to get to ask her what that's like. Then another thing I wanted to talk to her about was I knew that she had sustained a vocal injury recently. She had written about it, um, and so we ended up talking about how vocal injuries happen the medical reality of vocal injuries as opposed to the common misconceptions and the stigma that is there in the classical music world around getting injured. So uh, just a note here, we talk about the term bel canto as a style or technique of singing. And for the purposes of this conversation, again, I'm not really an expert, uh, but I'm going to define bel canto as that sort of typical classical operatic style that you think of when you think of Renee Fleming. Uh, and again, just so we're on the same page, uh, there are, we, we compare in this conversation the bel canto style with what we call early music or historical performance. Uh, and if I were gonna pick two big differences between uh, bel canto and historical performance, one is repertoire, largely speaking, broadly speaking, historical performance uh, applies as a, a way of approaching music written before 1750. And uh, the bel canto style developed in the performance of contemporary music written in the late 19th century uh, and into the 20th century. So um, a second thing that might be a difference between historical performance and bel canto is their use of vibrato. Again, broadly speaking, bel canto style defaults to a continuous use of vibrato, whereas historical performance style, such as it is, um, is known for using vibrato more sparingly, but not as any kind of like edict or anything. So anyways, that's all you need to know. Let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Sophie Michaud. My name is Sophie Michaud and I'm a singer now based in the Boston area. I've been in Boston for the last nine and a half years after I was born in London and then I came to France with my family when I was six and then studied in Switzerland and Italy for a little bit and then came here because I thought that the U.S. was the best place to study what I wanted to study, which was classical singing. And now, I, now I'm now i here working, doing a lot of fun projects, very different styles with a lot of different people and it's, it's amazing. So one thing that I think is worth saying like right off the bat is 
you have your fingers in like a bunch of different pies <laughs> for like in terms of style mm-hmm. and I guess my question is like, what is that? What is that like for you being in the middle of that? It sounds. It seems like all of the different styles that you approach comes from a place of love and excitement. And then I would imagine at a certain point it might like end up being distracted. How excited you are by all these different <laughs> singing styles? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a question that I think about all the time. I mean, I started. I fell in love with music was singing when I saw the movie Sister Act 2. <laughs> yes! That's so good! Some people say I shouldn't talk about this as often as I do, but I, I just fell in love with Lauryn Hill and a bunch of other incredibly talented singers singing gospel music that um, growing up in France felt very like extra special, even though I know that a lot of people love gospel music here too but um so I fell in love with that and I sang in a choir that sang a lot of gospel music and then eventually my gospel choir director uh, in France told me that I should join a classical choir and I trusted her so I just went ahead and fell in love with classical music with being in a classical choir um and just felt amazed but how how many different elements there were in the music and how incredibly complicated but fun it was and how much I loved that. So I decided I wanted to study music and I thought that my father would be okay with me studying music if I had a diploma. (laughs) So I ended up um, going to the auditioning and getting into the Geneva Conservatory and ended up doing early music there. So I got really excited about about early music. I didn't really know what it was going to be, but at first it was Gregorian chant, and then I got thrown into doing 15th century counterpoint, and then fell in love with 17th century Italian music, and then Bach and Heidel, of course. And then um, I wanted to, after that, I was only, I was 21 when I got my bachelor's degree, and then thought I needed to de-specialize so that I could discover some of the other classical music. And so that's when I came to the U.S. And what was really fun with being in Boston in particular is that there are a lot of different styles in Boston, a lot of early music that at first I was trying to avoid because I didn't want to be classified as an early music singer because that in itself has a lot of kind of puts you in a box. And I, I felt like I wanted to do a lot, a lot of other things too. Um, and uh, yeah, and then in Boston, I did more... Uh, started approaching opera and starting approaching more art song and some of the romantic and contemporary music and got really excited about all that and then ended up meeting my husband Adam Adam Simon who introduced me to folk music in a way I mean I had heard of course of some um, some folk music like the American shape note tradition and I had heard of it but I he kind of I didn't know at the time when I met him how big of a world it was. And so he introduced me to what I sometimes refer to as the Village Harmony World, which is uh, an organization in Vermont that uh, that organizes singing camps with leaders from all over the world to introduce these different singing traditions and uh, harmony singing. And so I you know, got to sing more shape note music, but also music from Bulgaria, music from Corsica, music from the Republic of Georgia, all styles that I absolutely fell in love with, especially Bulgan music. 
And it was fun to rediscover Corsican music, which Corsica is a small island part of France. And I didn't really know about Corsican music, even though I grew up in France. So I fell in love with all these different styles that all have very different musical colors and ways of singing and different, uh, you know, time signatures and different um, ways that people approach both harmony and ornamentation and um, rhythm and just the color of their voice. And so I just absolutely fell in love with all that. Uh, and eventually out of that um, ended up creating or starting a group, I should say, with both Adam, my husband and Lysander Jaffe. So we became Kulomba. And we developed that style, kind of mix of styles, I should say, that mix of styles. And then we added, ended up adding two of our really good friends. And so now we're, there are five of us. So now Kulomba is a big part of my, of my musical energy. It's just singing different styles, but in one place. And so I got really excited about that. Yeah. You said you moved to France when you were six. Mm-hmm. And you were living in London before that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did your, what did your parents do? My my father uh, worked in in business. He grew up playing music, but he was kind of put it aside to to focus on international business. And where where did he grow up? He grew up in France in okay. Besançon, and he started working in London. And he met my mother, who was working at a pub, and he ordered a Bloody Mary and asked my mom out on a date. And uh, my mom is actually from Canadian. She's from Toronto. And so she was just visiting family at that point. So my parents met and my mother also eventually ended up staying in England instead of going back to Canada. And she um, did studies of childhood education and was a Montessori school teacher. Okay. What was your like musical culture at home? Aside from the fact that my father was really pushing us to take piano lessons, which I I think I liked, but mostly it was me taking piano lessons, me and my sister taking piano lessons, and my father and mother breaking out into songs sometimes when we had friends or guests around, but it wasn't a huge thing. And My father would sing songs to me, including, you know, tongue-twisting songs or drinking songs, but uh, (laughs) it wasn't a huge, (laughs) huge um, music-making tradition in my my family unfortunately but my father's incredibly musical and i can tell that he writes his own music and he or he has written his own music so it feels it feels like he always had it but didn't quite share it in a way that was evident but now looking back at it i can see that he really insisted on, on us taking piano lessons and really insisted that music was in our family and education so yeah was his insisting easy or for you, or what did that ever become like, Dad? <laughs> I think at some some point, I I hated um, music theory and I hated reading music, and I think it's because of the way that it was taught, very unmusically, in where I grew up in France. And I really, really would hate going to those classes. But overall, I'm really grateful because my family didn't push me to keep taking music theory, so they found a teacher that um, would teach me piano by ear. And so I'm really grateful that they didn't push me in in that because probably just wasn't the right time. And I don't know how I would have developed as a musician. But since I, you know, kept playing piano kind of, I guess, on my own terms, more or less, um, of being okay with learning by ear, I, I loved it and kept going until I was 15. And I really think I developed a different way to listen to music instead of reading music that teacher how old were you when 
they sort of discovered that you did you do better if you were learning <laughs> piano by ear um probably seven or eight yeah. okay so you were in france mm-hmm. yeah and your father was french so you're bilingual mm-hmm. and other languages as well my dad traveled with his job traveled to south america a lot so he got us really excited about spanish so i loved spanish and traveled in spain so i i'm okay at spanish and i wanted to learn italian because so much of my favorite 17th century music was in italian so i ended up spending six months next to venice in vicenza where i used to speak really good italian but i'm totally rusty so i would like to say i speak four languages but (laughs) okay well you're already way ahead of me so uh you know there's the whole like american system where i think most children are uh if they're given a high school diploma that diploma comes with a certain amount of resentment about a language they learned (laughs) france is the same just to be clear yeah people in france are not good at languages and you would recognize that as soon as you heard any french person speaking english if you know what they mean (laughs) (laughs) you can recognize a french person anywhere (laughs) my father still speaks like this when he he lived 19 years in london yeah so it sounds like there was a lot of appreciation for music at home um and your parents were like pretty savvy about uh like encouraging you to be musical and also like paying attention to you like i know that one thing that can happen with parents and their children is like you know there's this idea of like good smart children learn how to play piano and so you just do it and then or they or like they they push and they push Mm -hmm. too hard because they feel like it's they're trying to get their kid ahead or whatever but it doesn't sound like that was happening no and i think it was probably the right combination of the good and supportive energy that my parents had but also the teacher that i had was really fun and i loved seeing her and she was like she she's one of my closest friends now so she ended up being a mentor to me and I just I ended up really getting along really well with her so I I can't tell if it was I mean for sure my parents as I said didn't push me in a way that was uncomfortable this was the teacher who taught you by ear and didn't use music what was her name Monique Nadel Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah she was still very close did she teach all of her students that way? Or? No, no, no. Okay. So what was her background? She's actually American. Yeah. She grew up in in New York. She actually, her parents left Germany during the war and uh, she was born in hiding in France, yeah. <laughs> which is why they gave her her name Monique, which is such a French, such a French name. But her parents were both German and oh. they were hiding. Yeah. So she was born in France and then very young ended up. Uh, going to the U.S. with her family, but uh, yeah, that's that's her background. What about music as a part of their background? Like, was she like? I think of the classical tradition as being like so focused on on sheet music oh, and yeah. so focused on theory. Like, how did she make that? How was she comfortable making that transition? Well, I think she she was seemed to be describing the fact that music was happening all the time at home. That people would play piano and pick up a recorder and just play all these songs and had all these songs that they would sing at all moments. And I think that she was in in an extremely musical family. And then she ended up studying classical music, but was also grew up in the 70s in the US and was a total hippie. Her main instrument is voice. I think 
that was her hippie side of just being like there are other ways of doing things if this kid yeah. doesn't want to read music well that's not what music is all about there's this all this other side of music that's not reading music and 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 to be clear after when I decided that I wanted to be a classical musician I had to take theory and ended up falling in love with it then so now I read music I love it and I would I only wish that there would be that you know people would have fun with 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 that there's a really fun way to learn about music theory and reading music yeah but I think the idea that she had this vision that there are different ways of doing music and different ways of living that ended up not focusing all her life on on music but on women's rights uh, advocacy and so she would find great ways to make me excited about music well that sounds a lot like you <laughs> well maybe i <laughs> oh thank you for saying that <laughs> yeah well i'm 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 literally just like looking at your resume <laughs> it's like <laughs> Yeah, it, um, I, you know, I'm thinking about like all the different all the different styles that you're performing in, and um, also I'm blanking on the name of the organization, but you're and and like part of a sort of artists collective that mm. donates to donates part of all of their musician fees. To, yeah, what is it called? It's called Beyond Artists. Yeah, it's a really amazing thing. It's still pretty young, but. Um, one of my close friends here in Boston, Sonia Tangblad, is a soprano, incredibly talented and inspiring in all ways I could possibly think of. She's not only one of the best singers I know, an incredible musician, but also when she had um, when she had her son, I think she got really hit with concerns about the environment and ended up struggling with the, the idea that I think a lot of musicians struggle with is why am I doing music when the world is burning <laughs> or it feels like the word the world is burning and how can I justify going into rehearsal when I should be doing all these other countless things. But she's an incredible musician and knows the power of music. One thing that she ended up doing is creating this coalition that basically inspired that that any artist could be part of. And the idea is that you give a portion, however big or small, however much you want, to organizations that you care for and that that you use your visibility to bring out some organizations that you care for. So yeah, it's it's really fun because when you go into a rehearsal, you know that part of your work is is going towards something that you care for. So all the artists, are, if they can, put it in their bio so that every concert that they do, they say this artist yeah. donates a portion of, of, of their fee to oh. these, these organizations. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. One of the other things that I've been thinking about when I wanted to like ask questions about your upbringing was I think I remember from the concert in June, there was this, and you recorded it with Columba, the most recent album, an anonymous French song. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, that I think you said in the concert that that was something that your dad taught you. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. It's, it's actually a very pretty well-known song that a lot of you know, amateur choirs to any level would, would sing. It's kind of a tricky song because it has a lot of words. Yeah, my dad, we would sing it. I I wouldn't really know what it meant, but I mean, my dad is a very healthy <laughs> uh, a drinker. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> like he wouldn't be, I don't know how, anyway, he just taught me this drinking song and I never really thought much about it, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a fun song. It has a lot of words and says, um, when I drink, when I drink claret wine, my head spins. So that's why I only drink Anjou or Arbois. And when I do that, I, I do it while singing and I do it while being with my friends and drinking uh, and eating fatty ham. And it's a really, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really fun song. And it's one of our most popular songs. I mean, after concerts, people really come and say how much they love that song, which is really fun because putting a French Renaissance drinking song next to a Bulgarian song, in some ways there are similarities and differences that just bring both styles out, which is what I'm really excited about is just doing a bunch of folk music and then having a couple of Renaissance and Baroque pieces and then people being, oh, wow, I didn't know that I could be moved by this. And I love bringing it to audiences. I love bringing it to the choirs that I lead. Just want people to to just remind themselves that good music is good music and that you can like a lot of different styles for different reasons and that you can like classical music and because it could be really, really fun <laughs> yeah. as well as liking other things too. So. Do you remember when you first started thinking about music as a career? Yeah. You know, I always knew that I loved to sing, but I also loved history and I loved a lot of different things. But yeah, the last year of, of high school, I did a concert and for the Christmas concert and I sang and I thought, wow, you know, right now everyone is asking me what I want to do with my life. And, <laughs> and honestly, I think it would just like to be a singer, but my father will never want me to do that because he's in business and he left music aside like you have to mm. be more serious um but that night i spoke to my my father came to the concert and saw saw how i was performing and i had a solo and people were really exciting and enthusiastic and people were really encouraging me which i guess sometimes you can see when people Sometimes I wonder how did people know that I would be good at music? I mean, I wasn't that I mean, I wasn't that good. I listened to it. I was I was fine. But sometimes you can see when when people no matter their age really get music in their in their gut. That doesn't mean at all that music should be reserved for those people. I want everyone to do music no matter what their level or ability. I just think everyone should do music. But you do also see the people who get music really easily. Mm. I sang and I was kind of confused why so people were so enthusiastic about my singing. Yeah. But I think maybe people saw that there was something in my eyes or I don't know, something in my performance that felt like, oh, that this needs to go beyond just singing in a community choir. I've had that doubt too. My, in sixth grade, I had been playing the cello and I was in public school and I had an orchestra teacher that was like, you should play the bass. And that's how I started. And now I'm looking back and, you know, like whenever I like have any doubt about whether music was the right choice for me for a career, I think back to that and I'm like, why didn't I think, why didn't I think harder for myself about what I wanted to do, you know? But do you think, so do you think that he kind of got a sense that you would be so I've talked to a public school teacher about, I told my friend Colin about this and he was like, oh no, I know exactly what he's talking about because for bass specifically as a teacher who's in a classroom with, you know, 20 to 
80 people or, you know, depending on the size of the group you're working with, the bass players have to be people that you trust being far away from you. You want the, the kids that are crazy. You want them as close as possible. (laughs) (laughs) But the ones who are like, who can, you know, hold steady rhythm and are like generally polite like and like you want to you can put them at the back like and that that totally changed my perspective on it so um in general though trying to figure out what people's motivations are when they encourage you yeah (laughs) like i've been there (laughs) right (laughs) right right yeah you sing in a lot of groups but you've also, it sounds like, had a lot of really positive experiences being out front of a group and being the soloist. Uh. <laughs> and has that been like a journey or is that something that's always been comfortable? I've I've always felt comfortable being a soloist as well as being an ensemble yeah. singer. And I don't know exactly where that came from, but now I try to think about it when people talk to me about being anxious about possibly performing in front of as a soloist and now I think that I am able to just think about all the ways that music can be done and I feel excited about a way that I would take artistic responsibility with and just be excited about the choices that I make and also be excited to have the responsibility to invite everyone into the into the music I feel like if you're in an ensemble that responsibility has to be shared and everyone has to kind of be on the same page of like, this is how we can invite the audience to enjoy this. But as a soloist, I feel like I, I have something to say and I'm, I'm going to do it with my friends, either pianist or orchestra or whatever. And I have something to say because I love this music so much and I want you to love it too. And I'm just going to invite you into the way that I see the music, but there are so many other ways. I'm not saying my way is the only way, but I'm taking responsibility for this particular way. And I want you to experience it in this, in this fun way. Yeah, 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 totally. We're in this place in your chronology where you're sort of about to make a sort of professional move towards that. And I, and I associate what it is to be a student and particularly a student in classical music that you are very much doing the opposite of what you were just talking about, which is to like try and be a sponge as much as possible to what other people are kind of encouraging you to do. Or at least that's something that like unintentionally happened to me, Mm -hmm. I think Mm. like, and, and, and I think it's kind of encouraged by the whole like system. So you have like a teacher and the teacher kind of like you, you go to a school for four years or two years or whatever it is. And you have your private teacher and they are really the person who is like guiding your, your music. Uh, and I think for a lot of students, it can be hard transitioning out of that into, nope, I'm going to do it this way. And just like the rules don't matter anymore. Like, <laughs> did you ever get into that sort of student team? mindset and have to like wrench yourself back out <laughs> mm. I think some of my teachers have had a similar approach to music as I do now so I don't know if that's luck or if it's or if I'm just a result of of being a sponge but I think a lot of the teachers that I had especially beginning were always so excited about music and would communicate in a way that I would get excited about it so they were able to show me why this chord is fun why this word is fun why this style of music would be fun like why this ornamentation why hearing that it just kind of made me oh yeah I, I totally hear that and I feel that too thank you for pointing that out and then when I would perform maybe I would perform a mix of them and a mix of of me but 
And then eventually I had some teachers who were just able to technically help me out. From I think from about 21 on, when I came out of Longy, it kind of hit me one time when I had a master class with Martin Katz. And what he was telling me were all the things that I felt. I feel like all the things that he was telling me to do, I already knew, but I didn't trust myself that they were important. Yes. And what I, you know, he's an incredible musician, an incredibly inspiring musician. But what I really credit him for doing is for making me trust myself that what I'm feeling is legit for other people too. So I'm just going to trust what I feel. Yeah. And I'm going to trust what I what I do. And um, again, it doesn't mean that it's the only way of doing it, but it means that if it moves you, then that's enough of a reason to bring that out. Right. So. That's crazy that that is how that works. And I think, you know, going back a little bit to what you're talking about with the friend that started Beyond Music. Beyond Artists. Beyond yeah. Artists. But uh, that she was going to rehearsals and having this sense of conflict about like, this isn't a good enough thing for me to doing and while well, the world is burning, you know, I think there's a similar kind of like trust that you have to develop of, or, or there's a similar process that you have to go through of, no, when I get excited, other people get excited too. Like that's right. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when it's just through sound. I think it's not only sound. It's, I think it's your presence too. And I think live experience, live music I used to think that I didn't quite understand the difference, but there's just not only acoustically all the things that you would miss, even with the highest quality of recording, but the energy that comes out of someone's eyes or presence or... Have you ever seen like a cell phone video of a concert that you went to? Like you yeah. were in the audience and then you saw later a video that somebody took at the same concert and you're just looking at the video and you realize how boring it looks <laughs> while in the concert. It just seemed like everything was moving and yeah. like dynamic and you were like feeling all these. And then this Absolutely. like, oh, thing. it's just like, it. oh, it's four dudes standing still on a stage. Like, <laughs> why was I, why was That's I excited so by funny. this? Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. There's so much that happens in person. Yeah, I can't tell what it is, but it's, that's the magic of live performances. But not all live performances are always like that either. I've always admired people like Jordi Savelle, for example. Do, do you know, he's yeah. a gambist, one of the most incredible musicians and done so much research about so many different things. And I was really disappointed when I went to see a concert of his that I don't know what was going on, but I left that intermission because I was like, it looks like the, like this this group is bored to death and oh no and i i hate it because because i really want to love this guy and i do and i respect him and i love all the work that he has done but that per particular performance no one smiled no one looked up they were still like totally in their zone and yeah. but in but in a zone that wasn't inviting right so, some people, I think, were really moved by that concert, too. So, But I was really lacking some kind of magic. Well, I mean, there's there's an element of, like, that advice that some people give, never meet your heroes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, like, never see your heroes in concert, <laughs> I guess. Because <laughs> if they have a bad day, you're screwed. Like, <laughs> But had he, had he played, like, 10% less well, but he had smiled, 
I would have loved that concert. Yeah. Some days don't go well. So maybe it was a day like that. But I'm just saying, like, I don't think it's purely sound as much as I would like to. Like, it's, yeah. I think it's humanity. I don't know how to describe it any other way. Right. So, like, one of the things that I wonder is, like, do you feel like you got that connection to, like, humanity is the most important thing? Like, if we take that as the, uh, you know, the the theorem of your argument or whatever, you know, that is your career. Um, it sounds like you got a lot of that from your upbringing. Like my own personal experience is, is the same where I feel like that that earlier period of my life was where I got the, the connection with humanity. And then I did a deep dive and encountered all of the sort of like rules. Then things got really confusing for me. Yeah, I was overwhelmed. Did that happen for you also? Or did it sounds like you've always chosen your teachers really well so that they were always in connection with that same humanity thing as well? Yeah, I really like the way you you said it. I think so. I mean, before, yeah, before I chose to study music, I was hesitating between a history degree or a social science or just something to do with the way people interact and how they behave. And I was really interested in that. I think I did get confused about the rules. I think for whatever reason, I wasn't so confused about the rules of music theory, but I I think I got really confused about the correct way of singing. It's this thing about like learning to trust yourself. Like when did you learn not to trust yourself? And that was about yeah. like vocal vocal technique. vocal technique. And I think that is something that got in my way and is still to some degree trying to figure my way out of that but I think it started especially when I one of my first boyfriends in when I was studying in Geneva was all about bel canto and how you should sing how there's only one way you should sing and and you should study for 10 years before you go on stage and and he would play all these recordings of all these famous bel canto singers and and so I think at first that started thinking okay so I'm singing but I'm not singing really right yet like I, I'm singing, I'm having fun, but I'm not singing right. Um, and so, and that continued when I was um, in school at, at Longy, where I just constantly felt like I really have to learn the right way to sing. All these other people, they're, they're trying their best, they're doing a good job, but not really. They're not actually doing the real thing. And so I've been kind of looking and I've been finding a lot of teachers, they are clear with how one sings and it's been helping me but I've always known with those teachers that when I get on stage it's going to be about the the music like I I trusted myself musically I I I really trust myself musically that I can give something that's interesting and moving and respectful of the music but um, I think I still struggle with what is the correct way of singing I used because I was so conditioned and thinking, oh, all these teachers they teach nonsense to their to their students, and then kind of always looking out to make sure I didn't fall in, into those traps of doing fake warm ups and and like not actual like, correct singing and not on my breath. Are you on your breath? Oh, it's all about the breath, and it just like totally got into my head. And and I've been working with a lot of different groups, including groups, uh, the women's ensemble called Lorelei Ensemble, where nine nine women and the conductor, Beth, and we do a lot of different styles of music, but a lot of contemporary music and commissions that we write specifically for women's voices. And to see all the women that are in that group, they're all 
pretty successful, but they all have their very own style and way of singing and way of talking about singing. And so that already started making me think, really, is there only one way that they're all really successful and incredible musicians? Oh, but like part of me was like, oh, but I'm going to discover the secret soon if I keep studying religiously. And then it ended up being that I recently something kind of hit me and I, I've been struggling with it, but I, I got, I had a vocal injury this summer. And so I had to do vocal voice therapy with an incredible therapist uh, here in Boston that everyone loves, whose name is Tara Stadelman Cohen. She works with a lot of different kinds of singers, but she says that the really big difference between classical singers and singers of other styles is that classical singers always think that their injury is because of bad technique because they don't know how to sing well maybe this is a generalization but that's what she was saying is that very often classical singers say no but no but i must be doing it wrong like i must be using too much air i must be like there's something really wrong about my technique can you please save me and tell me the truth about what the actual secret is whereas singers of other styles don't seem to refer to the right way of singing in the same way. They take any injury as being overworked or or any other things. In like a healthy way. Right. <laughs> yeah. In, in a in a great way, but not but not that they didn't understand. Right. Yeah. Sorry. When I said healthy way, it's like they're they're processing the injury in a healthy way. Yes, it's like exactly. that like mentally understanding what's exactly. happening. Exactly. And but I wonder where that comes from specifically with classical is it just the sort of like we gossip about technique like is that is that the thing i don't know because and and you said it's this center or or this woman was saying like specifically classical musicians think about it this way and everybody else is thinking about it that way and the classical musicians are thinking about it wrong (laughs) there must be exceptions but but yeah that's pretty much what she was saying it's just like no you got injured because you sang too long without proper rest maybe you're warm up warming up in this way that's a little too too fast too soon or you're not varying just the ways that you're using your voice and you need to take a little mini breaks or you have to understand like your voice budget but it doesn't have to do with you not knowing this mentality that i i just kind of hope that one day i'll trust my voice in the same way that i trust my musicianship you know, I, I think one of the things I was thinking about while you were talking about the, you know, classical music sort of versus all the other styles of singing and vocal technique and all of that, there's, um, my sense is that there are less institutions that are formed around other styles of music. Or if there are, they are smaller and they don't last as long. I mean, like a, the immediate like thing that came up was like well Motown or like New York or <laughs> like that but there are the, you know maybe it's centered around like particular studios or something like that but like yeah. anytime there's in like a you know a thing like a conservatory formed you're kind of at, at danger of presenting that there is a right way whereas Lizard Lounge there they have the open mic night and there's 20 people singing and there's 20 different styles of singing and like that's the way it's supposed to but not with classical music so i don't know that it's only the institutions i think one of the cool things about longi where where i studied is that 
I feel like it accepted, Longy accepted a lot of students who wouldn't be your typical conservatory students. Mm. And I, I felt like I was part of that because there was something about me that I felt like I wasn't a typical conservatory candidate. It's almost kind of like it was just opening up its its vision of what a musician can be. And I, I really like that about Longy. And I, mm. I felt that maybe that was an environment in which people could develop more independent mind what degree did you do at longy uh masters but you said you went to longy not feeling like you were a typical conservatory student but you got a bachelor's in music yeah i think it's because i had studied early music and there's a stereotype that just makes you feel like when you study early music you have this particular kind of voice when you're an early music singer maybe you're just thinking so much about ornamentation and history and historical practice and all kinds of really, really fascinating, amazing things. That technique, the right way of singing, is not is not the first thing on your mind. So I felt like I was really late. Now that I think back at it, I wasn't actually that late. In fact, I was pretty much right on track, if you will, <laughs> whatever that means. But at the time, I felt like, oh, I didn't really learn the right way of singing yet. I'm late part of the Geneva Conservatory had this reputation of just of not as good singers as the as the regular conservatory as the people who had learned how to sing romantic music as well so like I mean and there's a stereotype everywhere not only in Geneva but when you're an early music singer you're an early music singer if you know what that means kind of like you have no vibrato and you don't know how to sing basically and it's it breaks my heart because because there are just so many different ways of doing music. I knew how to love music, though. And I think that was that was the most important. Yeah. Which is why I think Longy was excited about having me. So what was your injury when you got your injury? This was in the last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. In talking to this uh, vocal coach, what did you determine had happened? We're not exactly sure. But, so what I had was a polyp, a hemorrhagic polyp. Which was described to me kind of like a little blister that just comes on your vocal cord after a trauma. Typically, people would get polyps after yelling at a sports game or screaming, or like it's it's something that happens after a trauma and not after misuse for a long time. Which is a little confusing to me because I don't remember a specific moment where I would have made a huge particular thing, but I did remember that I was teaching the whole a lot but I think it was just it just came out of the year last year was full of incredible really really fun concerts but I just it was kind of one after the other so I didn't really have much time to rest which is a struggle for most people most musicians when you're trying to make ends meet and then it's just oh can you do this this wedding for $200 can you do this this gig can you do this and then this mix between what you want to do because you're really excited about the collaborations. Yeah. Or what you have to do because it pays really well and you need that money to be able to afford doing other things. To be able to afford to rest. (laughs) Right. I had to, you know, do total vocal rest for only one week, which was kind of surprising for them to see how that would develop. And so it was still there after the week of total silence. I couldn't speak, I couldn't sneeze. So I was told that I had to have surgery, which um, 
my my um, health insurance wouldn't cover, so I had to actually go back to France to start the whole process. And while I was fighting with insurance for a few weeks or whatever, and then until I actually decided to take a plane and go to France to see a doctor, I was told that my polyp has disappeared. The doctor in France said, yeah, these things disappear, which is why you shouldn't rush to operate. So then I got really confused and still felt not, didn't feel great vocally. I mean, I could speak fine, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't, um, I mean, I couldn't imagine singing. And then slowly I ended up starting back singing and taking voice therapy and learned a lot about my instrument, which felt incredible. I felt like I really learned a lot about the way that my voice works and I was never interested in it. (laughs) You know, I think that it sounds like you're you've gone through a thing that is really healthy, but really hard to figure out, which is like, okay, what are my limitations? And how do you have that conversation with yourself in a way that doesn't make you feel like, oh, I'm defined by my limits. Like <laughs> It's awful. That's exactly how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, I, I, I'm in the middle of figuring that out. I constantly, as a musician, compare myself to, am I contributing enough? Am I active enough? And the difference between what my head can do and my voice can do is also kind of a a tricky thing because I'm always ready and I want to hang out with friends and I want to discover, like sight read all these madrigals and I want to, but my voice just won't do it. And um, it's it's painful, but... um, and not painful vocally, <laughs> but it's painful right. to not Mentally. to, to uh, not yeah. to not be able to to do as much as I would want to, especially if mentally I'm totally there. So okay, I feel like now would be a good time to like play another clip of you singing. What I want to know is, like, how, how did you figure out how to sing in two different styles? <laughs> like, I guess, I don't know. Because your voice uh, is clearly doing something really different when you're singing those two songs. Yeah, totally. Or it sounds that way. Yeah. What do you think about when you have to transition to doing, like, American music as opposed to French music? Yeah. Such a great question. I love it. And I wish I had a better answer, but I think it's just like popping myself in the in the world, in the sound world. That um, that sounds I don't know how that sounds <laughs> from outside in my head. It feels like the best word that I could find right now. But um, <laughs> for nothing but the water, and for hush, although they're different styles, still I think between both of them. But I just I just loved gospel music and African-American voices in general have always been 
kind of my model. <laughs> my, my, I mean, I've just always, always loved those kinds of voices and uh, that power and that, you know, the energy and the emotion that goes into it. So it's not a technical thing. It's like you're, you're just listening. Yeah. And I wish I knew what I was doing technically, but in the same way that the way I'm controlling my vibrato or like, I don't think about it. And the same thing happens when I sing French, um, Edith Piaf kind of 40s, 50s style. It just feels like I've heard this a million times and this is the, z- the zone that I'm in. Yeah. And then, oh, Renaissance. This is the zone that I'm in. I mean, I think that's a really good answer. And it's a it's a challenging answer from the classical perspective because we want to have answers for everything. Mm-hmm. But I think it requires that you that you spend time listening to it, a lot of time yeah. listening to it. Right, it becomes like a caricature instead of a... Right, right. Which I don't get from these recordings. I'm glad. I hope that's... I I try. I mean, ultimately, I'm always trying my best, but it does require, I think... Yeah, I think it is a lot about listening and just kind of being immersed in it. Who were your gospel people when you were growing up? Let's see. It was gospel and jazz. I mean, of course, Ella Fitzgerald. I was just always fascinated by her voice and the way she scattered and that was always amazing to me. Etta James, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of. Mahalia Jackson, of course. A um, little bit later, Nina Simone and those kinds of <laughs> incredible artists. I think growing up in France, you have a different vision of what gospel is than when you're here in the US. And I think now I realize that it's way more complex how can I say this right? Is it a is it a thing about race? Like, I mean, yeah. that's one question that I do have of like, as a person of European descent, like, especially right now, there's like so yeah, much conversation about yeah, that's appropriation. A, that's a huge thing. So yeah, I, it's the kind of thing where I'm, I'm afraid of saying the wrong words and yeah. knowing what yeah. exact words I can use. But I realize now it's very, very complex. And I ha- always have second thoughts about, right. about not about loving it. Oh, I yeah. love it all, all I can. I still will. But I, but about saying it and what it means. And if I do it, how can I do it respectfully? And it's a huge, huge conversation. I don't have all the answers for. But yeah. growing up in France, I didn't have any of these, any of these thoughts. I don't know if it was. Yeah, I just wasn't. In, if those conversations weren't happening in France, obviously, there's a, a very different kind of demographic in France, and so. But those kinds of hard questions didn't come up, and right. I'm really, yeah, it's fascinating and hard to <laughs> to ask yourself these yeah. questions. And like the American connection to slavery is so complicated. Yeah, so is in, in so is that, France's relationship to slavery, I'm but sure. yes. but it's yeah. again conversations that are not being had quite as much as they are here. So so much to figure out, but it's already a step in the convers- in the right direction that some of these conversations are being had, whereas in France. People still don't talk about slavery. Right. They're not faced with those questions as much, and unfortunately, it will it will, it will happen. Mm-hmm. It has to happen. Yeah. Okay. So what I what I've tended to do is have a question, like a two part last question, which okay. is, what is your least favorite part of being a musician? And then the second part is, what is your most favorite? And they have to go in that order. But I have a like more specific prompt for the first part of the question, which is, what do you think? It, like, what's the worst part of being a musician for you? Yeah. And I would imagine that at its worst, the fact that you have so many musical interests could feel as though you're like master of none. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that you're like sort of in love with all these different things, but none of them are home. But that's just how I would imagine it. I wonder if that is something that's challenging for you or if there's something that is like very clearly more challenging for you about your life as a musician. Yeah, I would say, can I only choose one? (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I think there are three things. There are three things that are difficult. Exactly. One One of them being what you describe. And I feel like if there's one thing that I feel at home as in is is in French music from the 40s because when i do that it just kind of pours out um but i can't say that it's necessarily the most exciting part of my musical life so i don't want to only focus on that so it's a struggle to feel like i have ownership on any of these styles but i just keep trying to do my work and know as much as i can on all these different subjects so that's that's a big thing the other thing is what we talked about is just not being able to constantly use my voice in whatever ways I would want to. I would want to go and lead songs and protests, and I've done that and blew up my voice, so I can't do that. Uh, I've I want to sing with my friends. I want to do all these different things, but I have to be careful with my voice. And um, I guess as as I'm, you know, going into my thirties, I think maybe. It's starting to become clear how little financial stability I'll be able to have if I'm keeping to be a musician. I didn't used to think that it mattered. And ultimately, I love my job so much that there's no way around it. I'm going to keep being a musician. But it is, you know, when I had a vocal injury and had to cancel about a third of my yearly gigs, I, I felt how much it can affect you to just not be, <laughs> to lose a third of your income. But... The best thing about being a musician is the freedom that you have with your time. I can, I don't get paid, but I can take time whenever I want. Yeah, the freedom that you have as a musician, the time that you, the way that you can schedule your time being your own boss is a really amazing thing. And, um, and of course, just like every time music starts, it's incredible. Yeah. (laughs) You feel good? Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, there is Sophie. Big thank you to Sophie Michaud for joining me and chatting. As you can tell, she is wonderful. She is delightful. Make sure to check out the band Columba. You heard two selections from their most recent album called Feathered Dove and also the Lorelei Ensemble, who recently announced they're doing this big national tour bunch of powerhouse orchestras they're going to be performing with boston symphony national symphony san francisco chicago nashville performing a piece written by julia wolf commemorating the ratification of the 19th amendment that's the lorelei ensemble check them out okay so anyways following up on the intro uh we can all agree that sophie is a fabulous musician but there's one thing that i wanted to point out which which is when i hear her sing i think about the the strength of her omnivorous musical diet and how in large part she is working in oral traditions as opposed to the classical tradition which is primarily written music that's been written down i think the classical music community can learn a lot from the way those oral traditions support playfulness and vivacity in their traditions I hear that in Sophie's music and I think it's wonderful and it's inspiring. 
and the stigma around vocal injuries. Let's put this out there for the record. There is no evidence to suggest that classical technique results in fewer injuries. Now, particularly about vocal injuries, a study out of Australia found that 51%, half, 51% of classical singers confirmed a diagnosed vocal injury at some point during their career. And then 23% of the people surveyed, nearly a quarter, had canceled performances during the last year because of a vocal injury. Nearly a quarter. We can't claim any any mastery of this understanding of what causes vocal injuries or any other performance-related injury. Now, I'm not saying that performance injuries have no correlation to technique, and I am actually an example of that. I had my own kind of injury. It was something like a pinched nerve, which means that I had basically really big muscle knots in my neck and shoulders. And what was happening, I was a freshman, and I was still learning solid technique and I was playing poorly and as a result my hand would fall asleep after I'd been playing for like an hour and that was scary but I was also a student with acknowledged technical issues and I was seeking seeking help from a teacher and on top of that I was anxious and I was depressed and I was overworked I was accumulating sleep deficits week after week at a crappy diet and while part of my symptoms did have a technical solution, there was a lot else going on. So this all taps into a theme that I hope to highlight during this podcast. Because classical music has an incredible record, an astonishing record of training musicians to perform at an extremely high level creating music that has a positive effect on the lives of millions of people and which represents in many ways the height of human achievement. But for all the beauty and all that mastery, there is some really ass-backwards thinking in our community. Some boastful and self-aggrandizing opinions and suppositions that are allowed to masquerade as fact. Namely, that the traditional classical technique is the only healthy way to approach an instrument of any kind. And then there's this crap about shaming folks that have performance injuries. This is a perfect example, right? Now, just like think about sports as a comparison. We don't suggest that an injured pitcher is therefore a bad pitcher, nor like a running back on a football team with a hamstring injury we don't call them bad runners. <laughs> no, we we have another way of dealing that dealing with that, which is that we whine about their expensive contracts and how much money the team is losing while they're sitting on the bench, uh, and we anxiously await their recovery. But we understand that injury is a potential outcome of a career in any kind of physical job, particularly when it involves a high level of skill. Performance injuries happen. If you are performing 10-hour days in a row with not really enough sleep, and then you sprinkle on top of that a little bit of anxiety about how critically low your bank account is, you probably wouldn't be able to sing high E's either. <sighs> right. That's my rant. 
This show is made possible by Palaver's Patreon donors and was produced and recorded by me and edited by McKenna Hadley-Burke. With help from Brian Gilling, Brent Edmondson, Kiyoshi Hayashi, Alex Gooden, Heath Marlowe, and all the members of the Palaver team. Anna French gave me belly rubs when I got stressed out, and I wrote the theme music. That's it for this episode. Remember to take great care of yourself. Buy yourself a pumice stone for your feet. <laughs> <laughs>